This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, podcast number 36. Uh, and with me uh, is our Corey Morningstar in Toronto. Hi, Corey. Hi. Good morning. And uh, Hiroyuki again from um, New York. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. And um, up in the great north of Sweden, uh, from Boden, I think, uh, Johan Edebo. Hi, Johan. Yeah, hi. <laughs> you guys are all so <laughs> weird with how you say hi. Uh, you're going to have to practice how saying hi. Um, <laughs> Okay, um, Johan, I know you wanted to read something. So why don't we start with that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Last time, so you mentioned that you wanted to do something on, on junk science and uh, scientism. And scientism has been a, a big interest of mine for like 15 years or so. And my, my doctoral supervisor and my friend and professor, Mikael Stenmark, is one of the big names in in uh, philosophy when it regards scientism so i thought i'd just uh, start us off with a, a discussion on, on science as a myth and scientism and how it relates to the media in my perspective and i begin with a quote from this uh, jacques elil whose book on propaganda i mentioned a, a few weeks ago and he he says that the myth he defines is uh, it expresses the deep inclinations of a society. Without it, the masses would not cling to a certain civilization or its process of development crisis. So the myth is a vigorous impulse, strong colored, irrational, and charged with all of man's power to believe. It contains a religious element. Uh, and in our society, he says, the two great fundamental myths on which all other myths rest are science and history. And based on them are the collective myths that are man's principal orientations, the myth of work, the myth of happiness, the myth of the nation, the myth of youth, and so on. And he continues, propaganda is forced to build presuppositions and to express these myths, for without them, nobody would listen to it. So. Uh, basically, he says that science is a myth, and not just any old myth, but the foundational myth of uh, modernity that powers and drives other myths and narratives constructed upon it. And I very much agree with this statement. I, I think that science functions in a way as a myth does. Yet this doesn't mean that science is only a myth or that science can be reduced to this function or that science isn't a reliable source of information. I think it is properly used. So what Elil says only means that science as a concept also refers to a, a social institution that has emerged around it and which operates in the same way as myths do in all human societies throughout history. Uh, if you can bear with me for a little while, I'd just like to give you a definition of the myth and then discuss what kind of thing science is and then I'll just say something on how the emphasis on science's mythological role or function generates something which people have called the ideology of scientism. Uh, so uh, the Westerner, the, the general Westerner is 
probably going to respond to this outline by claiming something like, we moderns don't have myths anymore. These are old superstitions. And now we, we deal in truth, reason, and hard science, and so on. But anthropologically speaking, all human societies have myths. It's just a, a, the myth is just kind of a body of beliefs, practices, and narratives that we use to make sense of the world, kind of the, the bigger picture that we use to orient ourselves. So this notion that myths are false, irrational, or unprovable, it's, it's basically just a colonialist prejudice. What we have here is a, it's a set of theories, narratives, and symbols that have a cohesive societal function and to which we are emotionally attached in a strong way. So, so myths are both kind of invisible, uh, they're the air we breathe, and they're hugely significant when it comes to creating consent politically and, and religiously and ideologically and so on. Uh, he, he states later in the book, it is remarkable how the various presuppositions and aspects of myth complement each other, support each other, mutually defend each other. So he says, if you challenge the network at one point, all the myths together react to, to the attack. Uh, if you, uh, so if you'd like, I'll just uh, mention what, what I think science uh, really is. And I would define it as three distinct, but, but also overlapping things. So first, it's a, it's a set of institutions for producing various sorts of knowledge that has been deemed useful in our societies. It's also a set of methods for attaining uh, empirically supported conclusions or true inferences, uh, generally within the, the framework of this kind of knowledge production. Uh, and it's also a cohesive myth. It's a system of symbols and narratives that shape the role of these institutions in our society and the values with which they are imbued. And these uh, symbols establish strong emotional attachment uh, and an almost unassailable spectacular authority. So here you find these uh, myths we've been discussing previously, the narratives of salvific progress, of this uh, secular cosmology where our purpose and the fate is kind of captured in this Star Trek narrative of progressivism and technological transcendence. My, my point is basically you can't speak of science as this single monolithic unified thing. Uh, it's, a, right. it's a complex of overlapping and sometimes discordant institutions and methods. Uh, and I'll just finish then. Uh, on top of this complex and, and uh, yeah, so, so it follows from that, that science isn't really capable of functioning as this uh, general arbiter of truth in all situations. It's, it's not coherent enough for that and its domain is too narrow, I would argue. Anyway, so when the mythological role of science expands at the expense of the knowledge producing aspect of science, I think you're going to have a proliferation of junk science, as you call it. So in other words, as the name and symbols of science as authority becomes exploited in propaganda, in marketing and in politics, you're gonna get an increasing amount of stuff that's only in name scientific, stuff that ignores the critical and methodological aspects of empirical science, and basically just produces or legitimizes ideology with the kind of authoritative branding of science with a capital S. And, and that's where I think we are today. And I would say that much of the COVID narrative is 
the perfect example of the operationalization of this mythological role of science and propaganda. Because if you try to question it, you go up against the whole edifice of modern mythology and you're basically a heretic. And I also think that the, the centralized, monopolized and omnipresent mass media is, is largely to blame for this situation since its goals and its very structure served to emphasize the propaganda function and symbolic authority of science and of this almost occult notion of expert knowledge <laughs> at the detriment of science's critical role and functions. So, so, so there you have it. That's my opening. Well, I, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, of, oh, there's so much to talk about here. Um, but, but let me, Corey, you had, I see your little hand. I guess. <laughs> okay, so so building on what Johan's speaking of, um, I'm wrong kind of green. There's actually a, a great article. It's from, it's an interview from 2005. Um, it's titled How Science Ignores the Living World. It's an interview with um, Vine Deloria, uh, American Indian, who passed away in 2005. And I just want to read a couple small paragraphs out of it um, because it's, it's so good. Um, okay, so first of all, in order to maintain the fiction that the world is dead and that those who believe it be alive have succumbed to primitive superstition, science must reject any interpretation of the natural world that implies sentience or an ability to communicate on the part of non-humans. Science insists at a great price and understanding that the observer be as detached as possible from the event he or she is observing. Um, and then it goes on to speak about um, how science um, functions in the capitalist system. In the capitalist system, whoever supplies the money determines the technology. This means that science as it's applied is never really for the good of humankind, but instead for the good of the financial elite or the military. Um, so anyway, I, I just would really encourage people to um, read this. I'll just end with another um, excerpt out of the article or out of the yeah. interview. They in turn formulate a set of beautiful lies that lull us to sleep and distract us from our troubles, eventually depriving us of all rights, including increasingly the right to a livable world. Yeah. Um... <clears throat> It's it's um, uh, I don't even know where to begin here. Um, uh, sort of responding to that. I, firstly, I have been having this experience with people when when I introduce the topic of COVID that that I kind of am asking people to be skeptical of the experts, because, in fact, um, there are countless experts who have dissenting opinions and you can find them all over the place increasingly there are doctors and health professionals and medical researchers who are um, offering up dissenting views on how covid works the pointlessness of lockdowns the counterproductivity of lockdowns the the meaningless of uh, meaninglessness of wearing masks etc 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 um but i find that that when somebody if if somebody calls you a conspiracy theorist if you, if you try to point out the the forces behind all of this and and the linkage with um 
um, giant, you know, telecoms and, and corporations and, and, you know, the high net worth 1% and so forth. You can, you can provide people with facts, uh, a, a, a tsunami of facts and prove you know, from any perspective that you choose, there will be proof that what you are saying is true, that it's that it there is a conspiracy. There are things going on that are being hidden and so forth. It won't matter. It doesn't matter. People have already made up their minds. And uh, one the, the, in trying to employ logic or reason in these discussions is um, is is just a hopeless task because it's not about that. Uh, people have been more deeply indoctrinated than I think uh, any of us realized, and and uh, it, that's the that's the first point. But I'm also finding a, a sort of a number of paradoxes, if that's the correct word in all of this and we were talking before the we started recording and i said that um uh there's a show on now snowfall about ostensibly about the crack epidemic in black urban centers communities uh in the 70s 80s and that it was driven by the CIA um, in Central America, and, and they were selling crack cocaine to pay for, you know, the Contras and so on and so forth. And all of this has been well documented, and the show is very well done. And the portrait it paints of, of Black America is, is singularly good. But characters will say things like the CIA character, who is in fact a villain, will say things like, um, but, but uh, we couldn't do that because the Colombians and Cubans had already cornered the, the cocaine market in that area. Now, that's the voice of the, the um, technical expert that sits in on all story conferences in Hollywood now. That's the CIA guy saying, here's what we would say. So he becomes the voice of propaganda um, in a show that, is ostensibly uh, telling the truth about CIA funding the, the crack epidemic. So it's very strange. And it ends up being, um, being much more effective than the, the top text, the subtext. And, and that voice, that CIA voice, becomes the, the primary voice of the show in a strange way. Anyway, yeah, Johan, and then Hiroyuki. Yeah, I think you can go ahead, Hiroyuki. Oh, well, I was just uh, thinking that um, uh, uh, what you said really uh, relate to what we discussed last time about internalization of uh, authority uh, among the subject population. And uh, what Corey said is totally relevant because... Um, the voice of native people um, seeing life force around us as a um, cohesive part of our life is totally um, against uh, colonial force, which came in to define those people as soulless beings. So they, you know, the settlers 
define them as um, such way because they don't own anything. They, they operate in totally different ways. And um, this framing of um, uh, colonizers is uh, totally relevant. And there's a religious aspect, of course. And um, so everything seemed to kind of um, merge together. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it makes sense to look at it that way. Um, Johan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with both of you. And I, I think this, I argue that the distinction between non-science and science is more or less arbitrary and it's always political in nature. And it rests on a, an old colonialist heritage to, to separate us from them. And, and also, John, what you're saying, when, when we're dealing with someone else and, and they refrain, they will not listen to argument, logic and reason doesn't matter, then I think it's probably a sign that you are, you're up against the worldview, you're up against the foundations of their identity, you're up against this mythology in, in a basic sense, because it's, right. it's not rationally, it regards emotions, it regards the libido, it regards identity and so on. Well, I think that we were we were also speaking before here in Norway, uh, the government has made statements and, and this has been written about here. There have been a number of op eds um, of dissenting opinion, actually. But the government has suggested that vaccine passports are very likely going to be something they suggest um, and that it's a good idea and so forth. And this is a very popular government, which continues to baffle me but anyway it is and i started thinking about the the obedient way in which norwegians have embraced uh social distancing and mask wearing and it's interesting because as the infection rate goes down as there are fewer and fewer positive tests fewer and fewer people are dying i mean nobody is dying um I see mask wearing increasing. And uh, it reminds me a little bit of, a, of something Adorno said that, that um, anti-Semitism in the United States increased after World War II. After the discovery of the, the death camps and Auschwitz and anti-Semitism increased, it didn't decrease. Uh, we're seeing the same thing here in a sense. These, there's, a, there's an unconscious or latent um, racism and, and, and uh, white supremacist um, ideology or, or belief system or, or set of values somehow in the, the purportedly liberal progressive Scandinavian um, culture that is getting expressed through this distancing and through these restrictions because part of what's happening the reason that uh, travel restrictions in and out of the country are being seen in such a positive light I think has to do with a large segment of the population wanting to keep black immigrants out of Norway they may not even be aware that that's what um that's what's driving uh, their embrace of this idea. But I think, I think that's what's happening. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, 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 the, the science discussion is, um, 
is really complicated because I think we're 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 getting into territory that requires um, you know fourteen hours of podcasts or something probably can't be done on podcasts because it 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 means we have to discuss the entire history of of you know post enlightenment belief and so forth. But yeah, Corey. Um, so again, you know, it's in simplistic terms, terms, we can just talk about this as who the science serves science, you know, and back to that, what we were saying earlier, the science serves capital science isn't serving, um, people, right. It's not serving life. It's actually just serving capital. And then tying that, that's an easy way of looking at things. Who does this serve, right? Like when I'm writing, who does this serve? What's this for? What's, what's this about? And it's always, I can always take it back. And when I peel off those layers, it's always um, some sort of um, campaign to implement um, a new emerging market. It's always in service to capital and it's always controlled by the people that control capital. Um, anyway, I just thought I could do a brief um, sort of overlay of media in the 20th century, like just a few quotes, starting with yeah, Lenin. yeah, please with, with Lenin. So we have Vladimir Lenin: "Freedom of the press in bourgeois society means freedom for the rich, systematically, unremittingly, daily, in millions of copies, to deceive, corrupt, and fool the exploited and oppressed mass of the people, the poor." Okay, and then you can jump forward to um, Malcolm X. The, the media is the most powerful entity on earth. They have the power to make the innocent guilty and to make the guilty innocent. And that's power because they control the minds of the masses. And then you can jump even closer to today. Um, Mumia Abu Jamal, um, the Panther and still imprisoned. Mm -hmm. um, the media itself, an arm of mega corporate power feeds the fear industry so that people are primed like pumps to support wars on rumor, innuendo, legends, and lies. And then um, you can, around the same time, you can see Julian Assange actually in, in January of 2018 sh shared a tweet, um, a really good map that I believe his um, WikiLeaks created. It's called the American Empire and its Media. And at the top, he just has the Council on Foreign Relations links to major media holdings. And there's a really good graphic. And then at the top, it has, um, let me just pull it up here if I can find it. It has the, so it has the Bilderberg meetings. And then in the middle has the Council on Foreign Relations, which was established in 1921, Bilderberg Group, 1954, and then in the Trilateral Commission, 1973. So these aren't, um, these aren't conspiracy theories, right? All these organizations, although they're often framed that way. So they're left out of um, dialogue because, you know, you don't want to be put into that corner as a conspiracy theorist, but they're very real. Council of Foreign Relations are established all over the world. They make the legislation, they, they write policy legislation, right? And then they have it implemented. And actually, if you go back, I believe I found a, um, an article in 2016 on the Council of Foreign Relations working with the World Economic Forum to bring into play the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So all this stuff, again, is all top down, right? And right. then um, more recently, you can see the consolidation, um, not only of global institutions, but you can see the co consolidation of media. Um, 
what do we have here? Hang on one second. Um, so you've got Time Magazine purchase in that sales force, right? Mark Benioff, who's the trust, the he's a World Economic Forum trustee, the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in San Francisco. He's um, the trustee of that. He's Salesforce. Um, he bought Time in 2018 for around 190 million dollars. Um, then you've got another billionaire. Hang on, I have to make this bigger. Give me one second. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, Patrick Soon Xiong, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. He bought um, the LA Times in 2018 for 500 million. You've got Lauren, Lauren, Lauren Powell Jobs, Steve Jobs um, widow. She purchased the Atlantic in 2017 for an undisclosed amount. You've got um, Pierre Amidar, um, what is he? PayPal? Yeah. Yeah. So he, he um, purchased First Look in 2013 for $250 million. You've got Bezos, The Washington Post, 2013 for $250 million. So that's just, you know, showing the consolidation of media, who owns the media. And of course, um, all these people are in heavy with the new, you know, the fourth industrial revolution, all the technology that's to um, regenerate growth. Right. And, and further consolidate right. power going forward. So just again, um, the problem is we have people responding um, and this is shown in studies, people respond to emotion, not to, not to, not to facts. And that's what they've right. discovered. So everything's premised on, um, you know, grabbing people's emotions, um, you know, basically, yeah, if you, well, if you can get people's emotions coupled with the conformity, right, which is super, super powerful, right, that need to conform, if you can get the population, if you can get, you know, I think that it's that key number 25% at the beginning, if you can get cross that threshold, then everyone will fall into line based right. on, you know, just this media, the emotion <laughs> and the conformity, all these different things coming together. Well, the, the, the consolidation is even greater than those graphs depict, right? Because the people, some of the, the funding, some of the ownership, the sort of invisible ownership of, of um, a lot of these, these telecoms or, 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 you know, media outlets are, are the same that are own other media outlets and then yeah. that ownership whether it's vanguard or whoever blackrock or whatever it is um they all own everything and it's all a you know infinite web of um interrelationships and and it's hard to even figure out um the degree of the consolidation except that it's it's acute and uh i think one uh, and an object lesson in, in the level of hegemony that we're talking about with media is that if you go to Amazon, which is owned by, by Bezos, um, you'll find, you know, all the books talking, <laughs> all the recent books written about media consolidation, the evils of media consolidation, Bezos company is selling them to you, yeah. you know? <laughs> Um, because he's not threatened by that. That doesn't threaten him. Um, uh, that's, that's the level of power that we're talking about. Yeah, Johan. Yeah, yes, let me 
uh, comment on that because I, I think I would say that what, what we know as science as uh, I would say as a set of traditions of knowledge has essentially developed within the capitalist and, and the colonialist framework. Uh, so, I mean, science is obviously useful and it's, it's, it describes reality in, in a basic sense, but it, has, it does so in, in a way that's guided by the goals of a particular hegemony and a particular economic system. And, and basically, and, and that also, this the spectacular usefulness and this, this violence of science and technology has also been the chief source of this, uh, this myth of progress that's so central for the entire uh, modern society. And I would say that mass media of communication is, is essentially a kind of an embodiment of that myth, even from its first beginnings. It's kind of the, uh, the, the concrete form of, of this, uh, uh, this raising up of, of technology and progress as the, the goal of society and as the unifying force of our uh, species and so on. Well, we're seeing, um, um, we're, we're seeing a level of, uh, of, of, junk science and and pointless science and pointless research now that is reaching a kind of almost comical level i mean it ends up being in the service of capital yes but it it also is this other aspect that i want to touch on but but i don't want to go there yet which has to do with i think certain inherent qualities in digital um technology and we were talking about this before the recording started that there is some um, expansionist inherent self-replicating mechanism in digital technology that it just keeps reproducing itself in um, in in meaningless um, compulsive ways uh, that almost um, almost out of control uh, and and serve nothing as far as I can see um, and and. Is, and it's also deeply flawed. I'm going to come back to that, too. I mean, we'll talk about AI because um, uh, I, I had an experience just the other day of, of trying to track down a package that had been sent to me and everything was computerized. And the computer scan of my name, which had been written by a computer, uh, but but I guess the it had run out of ink or something. But anyway, the package was sent to Jolene Sleeping, which is just a great name, but it's not my name. And uh, But I finally tracked it down and proved to everybody that I was Jolene Sleeping, in fact, and got my package weeks late. Um, one of the myths that, that is operative today is this infallibility of technology. And that's tied into this myth of progress as well. Um, yeah, Hiroyuki. Um, so um, I think uh, uh, the consolidation among the uh, ruling class is uh, uh, also uh, resulting in uh, deprivation of the uh, uh, livelihood, jobs, businesses. Businesses are small, small, and um, um, that would create 
uh, more roles uh, for the people that are subservient to the uh, uh, system. Um, this is uh, happening as the uh, ruling class consolidate and uh, more power would be deprived because we are chopped up, you know, the communities are destroyed. And uh, so it's, um, it, again, it's a very, very structural process that um, goes together uh, at a system um, devouring uh, itself, the, the people. And um, um, about the um, uh, dysfunctional nature of the um, uh, AI and all that, it, it's, I think ultimately um, the uh, aim of the uh, system is to perpetuate itself. As long as the uh, people are destabilized, being subservient, uh, dependent on the system, uh, they would go along. And the AI and all that, they don't really have to work in a way. They you know, right. can be uh, <clears throat> the excuse for the subjects to go along with the narrative. Uh, this is AI, you know, this is supposed to work this way. And if it doesn't work too bad, but that's, that's what it is. That's the framework you are right. swallowing now. Well, there's infinite examples. I mean, literally infinite examples of so much of this technology not working, so much of AI not working. I mean, we could go on for hours with examples and it almost becomes um, ludicrous at a certain point. And yet the mythology persists and it's, it's, um, it's taken hold of a kind of collective imagination out there and people want to believe in it because it is the new signpost uh, for navigating the world around them, such as it is, which is ever shrinking in a sense. Uh, but couple this to the, 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 the loss of education, the dumbing down of people, the, the loss of literacy. And I was reading some of Corey's work earlier today and that statistic that 90% of access to the internet takes place on smartphones. Um, that's a staggering uh, statistic because everything gets, you know, several degrees stupider when you're on a smartphone as opposed to even a computer. Uh, and, and it, it, the, the addiction, the habituation to smartphone usage, which, I'm convinced has an absolutely compulsive, obsessive compulsive quality to it um, is, is really rendering people um, has, has just caused a, a, a loss of, of creativity, imagination, dreaming. I, I'm sure people dream less than they used to in a sense uh, because, because there is, there is a unconscious adherence to, to the robotic people start modeling their behavior on machines more and more. I mean, that was bad science fiction from 50 years ago, but it is, but it is increasingly true. I think Johan. Yeah. I was just uh, thinking about what you said earlier with this um, self replicating tendency of the, of the digital technology and so on. Now, I think a part of the answer to why this is the case lies in the fact that, that science as a tradition 
is from the root integrated within capitalism and therefore guided by this logic of, of growth and expansion and so on. So, so what's in focus, it's not health and, and sustainability or spiritual growth. It's not the solutions that uh, this low-tech magazine I sent you emphasize, like how to build food graves in Siberia or how to attain sustainable forestry or create human fulfillment and so on. I also would like to emphasize that technology, it's kind of an arbitrary label which is permeated by ideology because even something like Gregorian chant is technically a technology, but that's not what you think about when you hear the word. So, so what, what I was just wanted, interested to ask, what your associations, what do you think about when you hear the word technology? What's the first thing that comes up in your head? <clears throat> Corey, I'm going to let you answer that first. I see oh, your God. hand. <laughs> well, I can tell you what my, I think the idea of technology, um, the association people have with it, the images that come to mind in most people are linked to uh, the industrial revolution yeah. and and that it hasn't uh, the, the language today hasn't changed that much people still use machine metaphors and descriptions that are um, were were in use uh, 150 years ago so yeah. uh, it's interesting because that's true with colonialism too that the language of colonialism um, is remarkably durable, I'm finding. But yeah, Corey. Mm, I just wanted to say, you know, from my research I've done, you know, I, I can quote something specific that I like to use. Um, and this might not be the exact quote, but it's something along the line of the fourth industrial revolution flows through the mobile, right? And so we have basically, if we want to stop the, what's happening going forward, a lot of people are really unhappy and don't want any part of this, the passports, all of it. Really, all we have to do is shut off that smartphone. I mean, they're lost. As soon as everyone shuts that off or, or tosses that, it's done. But I have more faith that people would give their children away than yeah. well. their smartphone. So I, I don't see that happening, even though people, are, a lot of people are, really want, you know, to... um to do something about this. And then I think it's interesting, if you go back to 2007, there was a paper written for the Gates Foundation, which now we see at the you know helm of all this um, power consolidation. And it was a paper written by Rick and Patel, who then founded Avaz that same year. Um, Avaz okay. came into play and it was all about um, putting the cell phone into every hand of everyone on this planet and how powerful an apparatus that would be so much so that Gates should fund and finance as much as possible to make that happen. And wow. then in a very, very short time, we're in 2021, that was 2007. And look, you know, 90% of the internet through the mobile phone. And it was um, in particular, that paper, they focused on um, the global South, right? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, just again, really, really interesting how this technology is really quickly taken over the world to the point I see so many um, relationships being destroyed by these phones. I see people in my neighborhood. I've started calling it the um, stupid parade um, outside everything <laughs> I see, right? The mass and every there's a lot of dogs where I live. People walk their dogs. I can't even tell you how many people have a phone in their hand 
They can't, they don't look at their dog. They're not looking around them. The entire walk, they are on their phone. Um, I, yeah, I have yeah. one of my, yeah. So anyway, one, one of my children, I've had a really difficult time as, as you know, John, um, one of my children's really, really addicted to fentanyl and it's, you know, really been a oh, struggle is, is not mm. the word. It's been a nightmare, but almost as bad as the fentanyl is the addiction to the phone, which is basically the, um, you know, the, the link to the fentanyl and the life and everything else that supports that. I mean, there's just so much happening. And well, it, the, 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 um, the turning people into zombies is a metaphor that people use um, sort of uh, flippantly, but it's true in a sense. And it's yet another explanation for, for the popularity of, of the zombie trope. Uh, but, but, Throughout all of this, one of the one of the threads that connects this entire discussion is how dehumanizing all of this has become. Uh, and the the COVID lockdowns, yes, there's um, there's a political and and um, economic motivation driving a lot of it. And people ask me that often say, well, but, you know, why is the government doing that if it's not just to, you know, take care of you know, the, the health of the society, they're just fighting this disease. Why else would they be doing it? And then you have to go back and try to explain, well, it's the monopolization of retail in the same way that media has been monopolized. Everything, there is a consolidation of power on all fronts and a, a uh, deprivation uh in people's lives and, and a restricting of their lives emotionally and psychically and, and physically. Uh, and you look at, at um, the recommendations from people who are doctors, some uh, to put masks on infants. I saw a woman in the market the other day with a six month old baby that had a mask on. I mean, this is such madness that, you you don't know what to say. I mean, I have to control myself because I want to scream at these people. Um, what in what what universe does that make sense to you as a mother to do that to your baby? How is how did you arrive at that at that place? At what point did did you become that kind of monster parent? It's just baffling to me. But. But this is this is what runs through the entire thing. And I think we have several fronts here, too, because it's it's complicated and it's easy to get kind of simplistic um, and generalize about these things, because on the one hand, you have um, the depopulation eugenicist front that, you know, the face of which is perhaps um, Attenborough, but Lady Goodall as well, Baroness Goodall. Uh, and the royal family in the UK and so forth. And they absolutely believe uh, in, in depopulation and uh, sterilization and coercive sterilization. And uh, this is the Gates Foundation as well. Then you have sort of the Silicon Valley gajillionaires uh, that seem to be driven by profit and, and what in their minds is power. I don't know what that means to somebody like Jeff Bezos. Uh, what the drive to accumulate ever more means to him. 
but uh, it, it, so there's several things going on. There is there is an umbrella over it that um, the practical effect of which is to is to exercise a ever more absolute control over the populace, over the people that are not part of that one percent. And it is to limit and control social rebellion and social um, uh, instability and prevent any kind of grassroots organizing um, to fight against that. So that, that seems to be the, the, the general um, thematic blueprint here. Um, but Johan. Yeah, yes. The, the fact, uh, the, the very notion of depopulation, I would say, is, is kind of the embodiment of uh, rationalist, uh, of enlightenment rationalism as applied to ethics. I mean, it's the inconceivable outside of a, of a consequentialist kind of mindset. So it's uh, the same thing again. Yeah, yeah. Hiroyuki? Well, I was just thinking that the uh, uh, there's distinct nature to the uh, this particular mobilization compared to the uh, uh, war on drugs, war on poverty, war on uh, uh, war on terror, uh, which is uh, it's it's war on people. It, the target uh, is us, and that. Uh, brings up a lot of uh, emotion, uh, you know, a lot of justification, uh, harming of children uh, and justification for it. And uh, this, this should be really, uh, 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 you know, uh, we need to keep in mind, I think, uh, <clears throat> to understand. Yeah, no, yeah. I, yeah, no, I agree. I was just thinking that, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but um, I, I was just thinking how um, how you know fearful I am finding people, and um, how pervasive that fear is, and that I think part of the effectiveness of the current fear mongering around COVID, you know, because I look, you know, Texas. <laughs> The infection rates keep decreasing in Texas. They're going to come up with an explanation for that, but they haven't yet. Um, they meaning Fauci and Gates and everybody. Um, but the but part of the reason for the effectiveness of this fear mongering has been, uh, I think, I can link to the psychological uh, damage from these lockdowns, which is both subtle and. Uh, and, and far more uh, acute than, than I think any of us realized at a certain point. And with Easter just passing the other day, and, and again, we were speaking of this before the recording, um, and people not being allowed to travel. I know in Norway, everybody was told, don't, you know, just skip Easter this year because you can't have too many people. And if you do go to, you know, there's only five people to a room and you have to shop at your local market. Don't shop if you travel to grandma's village or whatever idiotic restrictions they, they were throwing out there and people were following this. So essentially they were saying, don't celebrate Easter. Um, and, and in the United States, you know, don't celebrate Christmas, don't celebrate Thanksgiving, don't celebrate these holidays. And it made me reflect on um, what 
because everybody makes fun of these holidays. Oh, well, these holidays are disconnected from their origin. They're just meaningless commercial um, commodity exercises. And that's true to a large extent. But I think they're also, and, and I only realized this when they were generally taken away from everyone, that they serve as little uh, partly unconscious, maybe wholly unconscious rituals of forgiveness. That you have to go sit with in-laws that you may loathe, you know, it doesn't matter, but, but, you know, the kids love grandma or uncle Joe or weird aunt Sally. And so you go along with it and you shut up and you keep a smile on your face and you eat the crappy food that the in-laws cook. Then you think, tell them it's great. It doesn't matter because you want the kids to be happy. And so you go through it. And so for this attenuated little period uh, you must forgive these people that you that you otherwise kind of actively dislike and avoid. And there's something important in that. And when a society no longer even has that, mm-hmm. uh, I think there are latent symptoms are going to surface and and latent aggressions and mm-hmm. um, and and self-loathing and frustration and um, it people are going to be more prone to self-harm and we're seeing child children adolescents and and even pre-adolescent self-harm spiking um and it was a 12 year old boy jumped off the roof in new york city the other day um we're going to see that more and more i think because people are being robbed of the last mm-hmm. threads of civil um connectedness somehow yeah johan yeah i I think you're right here and i rituals i mean they they connect us they actualize the myths and the symbols of our worldview and they connect us to people and to places and this in turn is a, is a basic fundamental need of human beings for our identity and psychic integrity and so on I think what we're seeing here is a, is a displacement of the traditional, normal, natural uh, rituals and, and uh, in some, to some extent, myths. Uh, and we're, we're replacing them with kind of technological alternatives, Zoom conferences and uh, afternoon tea and, and all of these things. And I think this is very significant because it's, it's going to connect us and link us to these things instead of our surroundings and uh, co- co-humans. Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's true. I remember way back once upon a time, um, I actually taught preschool. Uh, <laughs> um, it was right when I got out of jail, but that's another story, um, and how that happened is a whole other story. But anyway, I did teach preschool, and one of the, and from a wonderful guy who ran this very progressive school in Los Angeles, and um, and one of the things he said to me was children. Um, need strokes, you know, they need reinforcement, they need you to recognize them and recognize what they're doing. And if they can't get positive strokes, they will get negative strokes. They will, you know, bite the kid next to them. They will throw something through the window. They, because the one thing they can't tolerate is no strokes, no touching, no connection, no recognition. 
And so we're seeing a society that is trending toward the abolition of recognition, of mutual recognition. Um, Hiroyuki? Um, well, um, uh, how can I put it? Um, I was just thinking about the uh, uh, what you said about the holidays, uh, the negation of rituals um, um, from the perspective of uh, um, negating the colonial past and all those things that uh, we talk about. And uh, I think that comes from the fact that um, people are basically speaking uh, their authority uh, uh, self, the, the, the internalized uh, uh, framework of the system saying that uh, this is not good and uh, we have to get rid of it. But uh, in effect, they we're forced to uh, do away with uh, what we need uh, because we cannot uh, go out and do away with the uh, colonization of uh, uh, Venezuela, Iran, or, and so on, so on and so okay. forth. Mm -hmm. um, people come to that place where we talk about uh, these past atrocities and uh, we we're not gonna um, do in this. But it, it, on the other hand, we're forcing each other uh, rituals of mask wearing and um, uh, enforcing masks and social distancing and those things. Uh, and in addition to the uh, destruction of small businesses and all those uh, things that serve the uh, ruling class. So again, it, it really, uh, what we're talking about is really cohesive um, mechanism of uh, self-destruction and that also of course lead to the uh, self-destruction of um, um, drug abuse and all those things that comes from the fact that we have this tendency to um, go for well, you know, well things that are uh, available to us you know, yeah you know but absolutely addiction um, is fueled by disconnection by erosion of community, um, by, by loss of recognition, absolutely intensifies um, um, the symptoms of addiction. Corey. Mm, I guess just the whole thing about, you know, the children and the distancing, the mass and everything. I, to me, this is the worst of everything. And it's unforgivable. Like I just find this unforgivable. And to the point I, I mean, I'm quickly losing faith in the people around me and people I thought understood, you know, the mechanisms that we're always speaking of, the capitalist cage that Hiroyuki continues to write about, um, you know, this whole thing, throwing your children to the wolves. Right. Um, I just, people, I can't really stress enough that this is a severing of the bond of the child and the adult, the child and the parent, the child and the adult, the child and the other child. It's the severing of the bond as they bond with technology. It's happening in front of our eyes. You can see it in your own home. It's happening and we're not doing anything about it. Um, we're basically serving up our children on a platter, um, you know, to the ruling class. Here you are. It's like a sacrifice, right? On the altar. Of capitalism. <laughs> no, it's true. Going. And um, it's, it's, unbelievable and 
they they say that I don't think I mentioned it in the last one in a 2016 um, sort of advertising type of video World Economic Forum talking about fourth industrial revolution education. They use that terminology bonding with technology. Wow. That is that is what is happening, right? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you can deny it. You can pretend that, you know, little Joey's learning so much on his phone over in the corner when you don't even have any fucking clue what he's looking at, <laughs> right? I mean, these, these devices are literally, the corporations have a direct line to your child, direct right. line, right? right. Um, right. And then parents, for some reason, think they you know, they can't interfere in that. That's, you know, his, his or her, that's her privacy, right? right. We've actually given up our, um, our, I, I don't really know how to explain it. I find it really incredible. No, it's, it, it parents have abdicated traditional um, roles uh, for parenting. And I mean, there's a whole, that's a whole long history that, that would require you know, a separate podcast, but, but it's absolutely true, I think. And uh, it's, it's, there are so many factors because I, I'm always so loath to, to generalize. And, and because I see these paradoxes, I see the overdetermination of certain symbols. There's a progressive side and a regressive side. I think it was Marx that said that to everything. And uh, you see it again in the, in the, in the propaganda machine um and and that in turn um the the way in which hollywood creates entertainment yes some of it comes directly from the political class they will say you should focus on this this is these are the villains you should talk about i mean i worked in hollywood and it was just beginning when when i left and it's gotten much worse i know that because i talked to people but the people that are advising scriptwriters and producers and directors are experts. They are the technical advisors. And uh, that means they are, you know, career uh, diplomats or State Department wonks or, or something. And, and their worldview is shaped by uh, the, the political class, the ruling class, they are the clerks to the ruling class. And they're going to, I mean, I saw something the other day, a perfectly innocuous show that had nothing to do with, you know, American foreign policy. It had nothing to do with America. In fact, it was an Italian show. And the guy said, yes, well, he was an immigrant. He was escaping the prisons, Assad's prisons in Syria. And I thought, now, where did he get that line? You know, where did he get that line? Um, why, why single out Assad? Why was he not escaping the Saudi Arabian prisons, you know, um, or the prisons in, in Israel or, you know, anywhere else? Because there are, there are de facto um, assigned roles to, to these symbols. Most people have no idea where Syria is or who Assad is or any of it. It doesn't matter. Um, it's pattern recognition. It's just rote, reflexive repetition of um, certain kinds of propaganda points. And they just hit that that point over and over and over and over. Um, yeah, uh, Hiroyuki or Johan, one of you guys can talk. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you decide. I can just go ahead. But because I think that, uh, that movie you mentioned uh, a while ago, I think there was a good example of what, what you're talking about here because... I think 
as long as the 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 cultural product some word uh, actualizes and resonates with these foundational myths i think you can permit quite a great deal of criticism and, and contrarian viewpoints as long as you confirm this as long as we can see like good old Teddy Roosevelt perched atop his horse and then we can feel that flawed America is still good somehow, then, I mean, you, you still recreate these ideological relations, even if you have a, a heavily critical account. In a Absolutely. Sense. That's a really important point. I don't want to interrupt you, but that's a really important point. And, oh, and okay. yeah, and no, and, and um, this show Snowfall is what... Um, you know, Haldeman would refer to Nixon's guy as a limited hangout. You know, Nixon yeah. said, let it all hang out. And Haldeman said, well, limited hangout. Um, th it was damage control, in a sense, this show. Yes, we will admit that the CIA, you know, funneled money to the Contras and sold cocaine to the black communities. There's a big chunk of America that doesn't think there's probably anything wrong with that. And it makes the CIA look kind of badass and tough. And, you know, um, so it's altogether OK as up to a point, you know, it, mm -hmm. we're, we're going to limit this. Mm -hmm. And the other criticism, that's fine, because overall, the show is, as you just put, pointed out, that show is confirming the basic master narrative here, you know, which yeah. is that America is a force for good. And when it makes mistakes, it corrects them. Uh, and and that correction then re-knits the fabric of society and, and, and onward we go. And America is a shining light. criticism world. reinforces faith in the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Hiroyuki? Um, I just wanted to point out that the uh, 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 the, the fact that uh, uh, the propaganda uh, narratives um, enforced in the movie industry uh, that I think that's a very very good example indicating that the uh, um, the force of um, technology uh, is not really about progress or development in a sense that uh, uh, benefit the people, the regular people who uh, mm. actively engage in commerce and uh, community building. Uh, it, it really limits our creativity and uh, uh, the ability to speak. And that is, I think, um, intended um, effect of technology containing the people containing the uh, uh, containing the economic development for the people. Um, so it's really not about uh, development uh, or, or uh, progress. It is uh, uh, the method to uh, enclose and uh, contain uh, the people. And the the lockdown measures and the the passport and all that that. That's another indication of uh, that direction. It is not about the development. Um, it, it's about containing the economic activities that benefit people. So yeah, yeah, and you know the 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 another th 
another aspect of the propaganda that I am seeing now is a, is a kind of bait and switch that is going on on a big level. The government will float an idea that is, you know, preposterous and, and something like um, without vaccine passports, you can't go to a pub, you can't go to a movie theater, you can't go to a sport. I mean, that's not enforceable, finally. Um, but, but there will be an outcry, a, a tepid, um, limited outcry, but enough of an outcry against that, that the government can be seen to be listening to the people and will say, well, okay, okay, that was a step too far. Uh, the passports are a good idea, but, but even if you don't have them, you know, you can still go to your favorite Italian restaurant. You can still go see the Broncos game and um, watch the NBA. Okay. Okay. And everybody that, the out the people who who issued the outcry uh, gave voice to this dissent will see that as a victory um, when in fact that was you know the goal all along was was to slowly encroach more and more restrictive measures more and more authoritarian governance and and control of the population and um, and that that mechanism is repeated constantly in the public propaganda. It just it's just extraordinary, actually. Um, yeah, Hiroyuki. Well, that, I think that also leads to the uh, the direction of uh, 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 universal basic income um, and uh, government subsidies of uh, people's livelihood within the uh, capitalist framework, which is uh, dangerous. Uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we know we're, we're getting these stimulus checks now. I'm waiting for my six hundred dollar check from Joe right. Biden and and, um, you know, which will do nothing for anybody. Six hundred dollars. You know, I mean, that's that Jeff Bezos makes that in a nanosecond every day. But um, uh, but it will be deemed successful and uh, people you will read accounts of how grateful people are and that it saved somebody and it bought pablum for little ronnie and it's you know whatever 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 and then the government can say well we'll do this more and more and this is going to slowly morph into you know um the the guaranteed basic income which will be chump change like the six hundred dollars uh and that that's what we're seeing people because dissent is so discouraged and because working class voices are completely absent from the media, and I mean completely, uh, you don't get to hear anything except this orchestrated um, um, pantomime, this, this show, the spectacle that is put on by the ruling class and is completely scripted. I sent Johan an article in, from The New Yorker about Sweden not having the lockdowns. And this was a perfect example of the way propaganda is is manufactured the way it's constructed so yeah anyway um uh anybody corey well i have something that's quite amazing that it even made any mention in the media it's from march 26 and it's um in the province of quebec in canada um after health canada warned about a mask that was toxic to the lungs and the province had distributed over 30 million of these maps <laughs> under the Ministry of Family Education and Higher Education. 
Um, so anyway, yeah, kids were wearing these um, transit workers. So these are potentially, you know, cancer causing lung issues, problems, they're toxic, and they were pulled. And, you know, again, it's just like, wow, we're putting these on healthy people, we're putting these on children, right? And yeah. then and it quotes a teacher saying that every time she felt sick when she had to, when she was wearing it, she felt unwell. Um, yeah, so again, it's just absolutely insane. And it, you know, I'm, I can't really get over how many people, you know, again, virtue signaling, pretending they care about climate, you know, Greta Thunberg sharing clicks and memes and whatever, um, biodiversity, climate, and then we're, now we're tossing away 6 billion masks per day into the, right. they're, they're blowing everywhere. They're in the waterways, rivers, landfills, they're, they're fucking in trees, right? They're wrapped <laughs> around the, the, the legs of animals and birds six yeah. billion a day. So, you know, don't tell me that you that you care about um, climate, right? All this wasted energy resources, all this wasted energy going into mass for virtue signaling. I mean, they're not serving um, humans. They're not, they're not protecting our health. This isn't protecting our health. This is um, devastating to, to our, to our lungs, to our bodies, to our, to our natural world, to non-sentient life. I mean, this is devastating and no one gives a fuck. Well, I think it's interesting and I see, get all of your perspectives on this, but it's interesting the way that COVID, uh, that narrative, that, that, that crisis was inserted into, uh, you know, the, the public discourse and it it completely dislodged climate. Yeah. Um, global warming climate took a complete back seat. I mean, it was absolutely absent for six months. Now it's kind of creeping back in, but it's been it's been reformulated um, and and adjusted. The narrative has been um, a post COVID version of climate concern is emerging now. Um, and and it's it's very interesting. Uh, but yeah, Johan. Yeah, I was just thinking about how, how all of these phenomena we're discussing are di directly a consequence of the, how the mass media of communication operates. Because if you look around yourselves, you, you're not seeing people dying in the streets. You wouldn't know there is a bloody pandemic of, of uh, epic proportions if you wouldn't hear it every day in this um, this uh, no i know mass media and i think Corey, you said something really interesting a few a uh, few weeks ago when you emphasized how the the control of the the digital infrastructure is much more important than the uh, the content creation and so on so I just wanted to read you a short part from this uh, this book of propaganda I'm, I'm reaching for all the time. And this is written in like 1960 or there around. So, so it's... Uh, is this um, shock it relates to, again? Um, Johan is a shock. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so he says uh, that uh, without the mass media, there can be no modern propaganda. Uh, uh, there are the, the mass media are not such instruments automatically or under just any conditions they must be subject to centralized control on the one hand and well diversified with regard to the products on the other uh, yeah he, he goes on a bit but the, the point is that 
you need this concentration of power for the the mass media to even be be able to to produce these uh, levels of the consent at this uh, scale it can right, work right independence yeah um no it, it's true but uh, hiroyuki you, well i just wanted to point out that the uh, it's it's very very significant that the uh, uh, the whole lockdowns and mask wearing and all that um, replaced um, activism for healthcare. There's there's no healthcare in the United States. You know the people, uh, a lot of people die of cancer, like six hundred thousand, something like that. And um, we have we have um, the people have been killing a dying of flu. Um, uh, the, the the flu situation had an epidemic proportion, and um, uh, the hospitals were overflowing before COVID, and uh, that's all because um, the healthcare is not uh, here, and that doesn't matter. Those things are not really uh, improved at all. But well, yeah, well, I, and, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Is no, going, I you know ensuring the masks and all that. It's 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 very very. Amazing. It's it's uh, uh. the the um, Lex, my son, gave me a statistic because he was at a conference with the L.A. County coroner um, who said there's been a 27 percent increase in work for the coroner's office since the lockdowns, not from covid, but from the denial of access to basic health care among the homeless. So. It's essentially um, a mass genocide of the homeless going on. Um, and, and, you know, uh, shelters are closed, soup kitchens are closed, no, the, the mobile health units that used to go around and, and service homeless camps have stopped. Um, and so people are dying. Yeah, Corey? Well, again, I mean, it's just all this stuff happening right in front of our eyes. It's not a secret. It's happening. Um, McKinsey, Deloitte, everyone is talking about this huge success. Things that, that they thought would could take years are happening in months, right? Weeks. So you've got transition completely. We're not our physical healthcare is going virtual and telehealth and virtual hospitals are being implemented. Right. And that's what's been happening this whole time is everyone's distracted and, um, you know, hypnotized and um, just crazy, um, you know, about the COVID. And then we have, you know, again, happening right in front of our eyes, we have education going remote learning. Right. And these well, waves, yeah, it's... waves, waves, shock and awe, shock and awe, shock and awe. Right. And it's all that's the that's the method, the mechanism to get it into place. Oh, we have no choice. Right. Oh, you know, mm. it's so dangerous, so dangerous. We can't we can't have teachers exposed to the, um, right. you know, no, it's always under guise of concern for people's health. See, but again, I think that all of these the, the whole push for um telehealth care and online learning and all of these things they'll walk a lot of that back because a lot of people don't like it but enough of it will remain right and so the people opposing it and protesting against it will see that as a victory but actually it will be another pretty significant step forward uh in this great kind of you know fourth industrial revolution plan um that everything eventually becomes online and uh uh it's it's 
I mean, no sane person, no barely um, uh, anyone with a modicum of, of, of cognitive ability thinks that online learning is a good idea. You know, certainly no teacher. I doubt you can find any teacher that thinks that's a good idea. But, but yet, you know, you will, you hear the mantra repeated and repeated and repeated in, um, in corporate media. Um, Johan. Yeah, it's, it's probably this kind of two steps forward, one step back victory you're, you're talking about. And, and right, that might right. be very, but, but I'm just thinking about, I think it's uh, very, very important what you're saying, Corey, uh, about these, uh, this, uh, this cohesiveness of, of the, the narrative uh, and of the vested interests, because I, I would actually argue that this level of consensus on, on such a controversial issue, which uh, where the, the, the positions aren't like any, in any sense, concrete, physical or obvious things that we can, can verify for ourselves. I would say that's, uh, it's, it's only possible if you have a very high level of concentration of power in the media. So I, I think that's a prime in, in indication that this is the case. The very situation we find ourselves in well i think that's i think that's that's true and that it's important for people i mean i don't think we can say often enough that to or to point out often enough the reality of media consolidation uh the consolidation of everything but uh of power ownership that that the migration of wealth um, to the 1% is nearly complete. Uh, they own the planet. Uh, that doesn't give them yet unlimited power. But, but certainly in terms of the media and, and its effect on the culture, because of course I, I see the value of culture as, as critical to people's um, um, being people, their humanness is connected. Culture is an expression of that. And that's being cut off. That's being stunted. And people's creativity is atrophied. And yet, and, and one, of the, one of the themes of a lot of corporate um, propaganda uh, is, is to, is to uh, what's the word to, to criticize culture or to degrade the importance or, or to minimize the importance to tell you culture is really not important. It's been corrupted anyway. And so we shouldn't care so much about it and so forth. And you see that with the, another strain of anti-intellectualism that runs through thing, making fun of intellectuals and eggheads. And that began under Bush. I remember it was very conscious that it's okay to be stupid and that um, Hollywood is always depicts um, uh, intellectuals as the villain, as perverse, as um, uh, sexual deviants, or somehow harmful to the young. Uh, this goes on and on, and and that's that's slowly been internalized. And uh, you know, with the rise of reality TV and the. That the amount of time, and this is another effect of the lockdowns, the amount of time that people spend in front of screens now has increased like 70%, I think, um, was the figure I saw. So people sit all day watching screens. Now, the lockdown has lessened in a lot of places, but the effects of that 
um, I don't think can can be discounted. And so they've been exposed to these messages for a year and a half now in very concentrated form. And uh, the road forward, I mean, you you're dealing with people that no longer read, spend all their time on smartphones, um, don't really want to discuss facts or logic or reason. They have the message, the approved message. Their life is given meaning by conformity to authority, conformity to the prevailing consensus. And that's where they stop. And that's it. Mm. And uh, how you disrupt that uh, indoctrination is is frankly beyond me at this point. But Hiroyuki. Well, I was just thinking about the uh, article uh, Johan uh, forwarded to us about the uh, learned helplessness. Um, uh, oh, good point. Um, you know, it, it, that, um, well, the article was talking about the, uh, uh, the political system in the United States is there to install uh, learned helplessness among the uh, subject population. Mm. There's nothing you can do. You can vote, but nothing happens. So, you know, that happens over and over and over. People decide that we don't have political self-determination. Um, so that could happen in other institutions, all the institutions, educational institutions will provide us the, the opportunity to learn the, learn the helplessness. And uh, healthcare would provide, provide us that. The media would do that. It's a really, really uh, destructive uh, cycle. Uh, well, well the other thing that the other message that is being reproduced over and over and over um, has to do with a kind of rehabilitation of fascism. I mean, I've seen a surprising amount of openly like um, fascistic message and almost Nazi-like propaganda. I mean, it's, it's really staggering. And... Uh, uh, and people are slowly, you know, it's slowly being normalized that, well, maybe fascism wasn't such a bad thing, you know, uh, because people are becoming familiar with it and they're becoming familiar with the symbols, the style codes to fascism. And um, it's coming in a, you know, in a new version, but it is, uh, there is a general sense that authoritarian uh, leadership is maybe not so bad. That's how you get things done. And uh, and and somebody said to me here, I was criticizing. I said, do you know how much money Bezos and Gates and these people made during the lockdown? And I quoted some figure, whatever it was, trillions of dollars at the time. And his answer was, oh, don't you know, you're just jealous of those who are clever. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> no, yeah, uh, to which I had no answer, I have to say. Um, Johan. Yeah, but I think this is really, really important what you're, what you're raising here, because uh, I think this, uh, the authority of experts, uh, it's rooted in this inculcated inability to, to trust oneself and one's judgment, this learned helpless, helplessness. And, and I also think it resonates very well with the, the myth of the hero that is so central to, to fascism to like relinquish one's power to this, this idol, this hero. And, and I think it's fundamentally inherently authoritarian to have this kind of, this level of authority vested in experts because well, it, I think, it erodes yeah, this assumption. 
No, okay. I, I think it erodes this assumption of a general competence of the citizen to make sound judgments in important matters, which is key to everything we call democracy. Um, I think that there's also something when we're talking about the inherent self-replicating tendency of of technology, digital technology, anyway, um, of of cyber um, algorithmic conditioning and so forth that there's but it's always expansionist and it's always getting bigger and it's always getting faster and it's always getting um <clears throat> more in quotation marks productive um that this is further distancing people that it is that is crowding out the very last little bits of personal time and reflective time and and um uh the little learned skills handicrafts and and um, and if people do know crafts, if they do amateur leather work or something, it becomes very fetishized. And, and I see that in the crafts community um, and linked to, to very kind of new age nonsense and, and, and simple minded bullshit. But, um, but, the, but the last sort of free time and quotation marks for people, the last bit of leisure that hadn't been colonized and 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 um, appropriated by by the labor system you know the, the the i mean adorno again in the frankfurt school said years ago how how leisure time was increasingly resembling work yeah. uh and and now there isn't the leisure time is spent in front of a screen and it's almost not um it is work and but it's also eliminated quiet individual you know reflective time it just doesn't exist anymore and that has eliminated the space and time to learn simple skills and and things with your hands or you know um all of that is is being um erased i think and the lockdown is the perfect the perfect vehicle the perfect delivery system um to eliminate it i think okay um johanna sort of i think we're gonna have to yeah, start wrapping up i wanted to, to mention that i said it previously but the school in in ancient greece it basically meant this situation where you had a lot of free time to sit around and reflect and chat with people yeah it's interesting i just want to add that over easter i I watched um, for the, about the 14th time Pasolini's Gospel According to St. Matthew. And uh, it is one of the greatest films ever made. There's no question. Maybe the greatest film ever made, honestly. Um, and boy, it's a film. It, it's a sensibility. You know, Jesus as a, as a kind of Marxist, sexually indeterminate labor organizer that's his vision but but it's also one of the most spiritual and beautiful and, and perfect expressions of, of something ineffable and and hard to define um and it's why critics have never been able to write about it um, um with with any degree of confidence or conviction it's 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 an otherworldly film and uh it's it's absolutely of a different time too. Um, and it made me very sad that I thought this is impossible to make today for a variety of reasons. Um, it would be very, very hard. Anyway, final thoughts from everybody. This has been a really good discussion, by the way. Corey. 
Um, I don't really have any final thoughts. I've taken a break from Facebook just because I couldn't stand to see what I was seeing anymore. I needed a break. And, um, you know, not to mention the fact as you were just stating how we're all on screens, you know, that we're actually teaching the AI everything and, and actually making our what should be our opponents stronger, right? Yeah, I mean, they yeah. gain more and more knowledge of us, especially those that dissent, you know, we're like lab rats being studied. And I just thought since I've been on there, I don't know how many years now, 12, I, I don't know, 2007, 2008, I, I don't even remember, but I've seen the decline of, of dissent and resistance. I've seen, um, I mean, it's not good what 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 i've seen what we're bearing witness to yeah. so i just decided to take a break and get off it's not helping it's i further it's just another tool of course yeah. i mean we knew that anyway uh, master's tools so I, yeah just taking a break i can't That's argue it. with that no i know i know i'm always i'm always contemplating leaving it um perhaps i will soon uh hiroyuki any oh, last God. thought well, I, yeah, that, that's the, the, the thing about uh, social media is uh, another uh, big topic, uh, as I see many of the discussions sort of um, um, arguably uh, contained within the imperial framework. So the more people talk about those things, uh, they disseminate those uh, ideas that are not really uh good um so it's a it's a it's a very very tricky situation we learn yeah. we network but at the same time you know i question some of the uh trajectories no i agree i often feel like i'm part of a limited hangout when right, i'm right when i'm on right. social media yeah right. yeah it's dangerous and it's troubling um johan any last thoughts yeah, just a brief quote. This is this regards the situation where Japan was like forcefully opened up for trade by the U.S. Uh, and here it goes. The members of the Japanese Enlightenment of the early 1870s, Fukuzawa among them, now recent as follows. Japan can keep its independence only if it becomes stronger. It can be, become stronger only with the help of science. It will use science effectively only if it does not not just practice science, but also believes in the underlying, the scientific worldview was barbaric. But so the followers of Fukuzawa argued it was necessary to adopt barbaric ways to regard them as advanced, to introduce the whole of Western civilization in order to survive. Yeah, you know, um, there's so many things we could keep talking about. And next time we will, um, because I was reading some of Corey's work and I want, you know, any, the people listening to this podcast should go to wrong kind of green, uh, dot org. Is it, uh, Corey Morningstar's blog and webpage and, and read, just start reading, um, because there's extraordinary material in there. Brilliant material. Um, automation bias. That's a topic we can get to next time. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's disheartening and, uh, and yet, you know, and yet Texas is open. And I think a lot of people are waking up to, to the problems of the COVID narrative, how far that dissent goes is, is the real question. How much, 
um, resistance is left in people collectively. I don't know. Maybe more than, than we suspect. I hope so. Okay, thank you, uh, Hiroyuki. Thank you, Johan. Thank you, Corey. And uh, thanks to Jack Littman, as always, in L.A. And we'll get this up soon, and um, I'll talk to all you guys soon, yeah? Thank you, John. Thank you. Okay, bye.